In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. In the Gospel text today, we see a dramatic moment in our Lord's journey towards his passion. He spent most of his public life preaching up in Galilee, in about probably two miles of coastline, a very small place, small part of the world, the the Sea of Galilee. And most of his preaching and miracles did take place within a small segment of land. If you actually go up the Mount of Beatitudes where he preached uh, his Sermon on the Mount, you can actually see every one of these places at which he preached and worked miracles. It's a small, small part of the world. But eventually, it was time for him to offer himself up. And so he took his disciples down the Jordan River south towards where the Dead Sea is now, which is where uh, Jericho is right there by the the edge of, of the Dead Sea and where the Jordan River flows into it. And then from that low place, walking up towards Jerusalem through the cliffs, through the hillsides, and finally to the Holy City. And the way that road goes, you actually don't see Jerusalem until the very end. You go from the Dead Sea and you walk up, in fact, through desert cliffs, through barren wastelands, which is where the Dead Sea uh, caves are, where the, the scrolls were found, in fact. And it's not until you pass over the crest of the Mount of Olives that you actually see Jerusalem. And you come over the top of that hill, and Jerusalem is sitting there directly in front of you. You're not far away from it. You're on the very edge of the city, just tucked in with the mountains surrounding it on all sides. And how beautiful it must have been to come over the crest of the Mount of Olives and all of a sudden be looking directly into the temple, which is what would have been happening. You would have been looking at the face, the facade of the temple, the moment you come over from the east into the city. And it's at this moment that the Gospels tell us that Christ weeps over the city of Jerusalem as he sees her in all of her beauty, The temple then had just been renovated. Our temple is in the midst of that process. It's probably not beautiful enough to make anyone weep yet, but we'll get there. But the temple had just been rebuilt and was more beautiful than it had ever been. Under Herod, the temple was much larger. All of its outbuildings, all of its uh, surroundings had been shown incredible care, had been shown craftsmanship a wealth of materials that Solomon had not known. The Romans had come in and brought with them a great deal of other building projects, secular buildings rising. This was becoming a city of the empire, cosmopolitan, crossroads, in every way beautiful. This is what Christ sees when he crosses over that hill. This is what he sees when he begins to weep and calls out, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I would have gathered you under my wings, but you would not. But now the things that make for peace are hidden from your eyes because you did not recognize the moment of your visitation. Jerusalem was at her height, one might think. The temple precincts were full, and the high priest knew their jobs, they knew the rites, they did everything well. Of course, underneath it all, 
was spiritual rot and decay. They had fallen from the heights that they once held. The Pharisees are really and truly a tragedy. In the Pharisaical order, they're not easy villains in the Gospels. If we remember where they come from, we should have great sympathy for them. Because in fact, they were the result of Israel's desire never again to break the law of God. That when Israel was exiled 500 years prior to Babylon, there in exile they said to themselves, never again, never again will we break God's law because this is what has earned us our deserved exile. And we see the force of that resolution when we fast forward to the stories of the Maccabees, when we see, in fact, perhaps the most amazing moment is a group of seven sons who go and remain faithful to the law to the point of death. The Pharisees are part of that tradition, only it has grown brittle. They've forgotten charity. They've forgotten the love of God. When Christ sees this, he weeps. Because Christ also doesn't have easy enemies. He teaches us to love our enemies because he has done so first. He has done so first. Christ loves every person who comes against him and who sets themselves up in opposition to him. He loves them all dearly and perfectly. And when somebody refuses to receive him, he weeps. His heart is crushed for them because we know that he bears even their guilt and even their sufferings, the things that perhaps would not be repented of. Still, he bears it simply out of love. And this is good for us to remember in so many ways. What can we learn from it? We can learn from it not to judge our own lives on the exteriors, not simply not to judge the lives of others by their external signs necessarily, or rather on the wrong external signs, but not also not to judge our own lives, not to say to ourselves, I am safe because... I do this list of things. But to ask ourselves always, how can I be converted more to the Lord? How can love of God and love of my neighbor take deeper root in me? Not simply so that I might be safe. Sure, for this, absolutely out of fear of hell, sure. But more because I wish to continue to love God more and more deeply. It's the truth that the closer we get to God, the more we realize the distance between us and his infinite goodness. And if we're growing in that realization and we're growing in the things we wish to convert, uh, to be converted from, if we begin to realize more and more what's going on in our souls, that is a beautiful thing. It's the greatest defense against spiritual rot is continuing to try and grow in grace by cooperating with the Lord's promptings. can also learn, of course, the way to deal with our own enemies. Not just simply those we, we happen to have difficulty with. Certainly, we should be charitable to them as much as possible. But the Lord calls us even to have charity for those who are not simply difficult, but those who are, in fact, against the good work we wish to do. 
How do we look at our true enemies or at those who really do oppose the cause of God? Do we weep over them? Does our heart break for them? Or are they easy enemies for us? Just as Christ has not had any easy enemy, so also the Christian should not. But in fact, the Christian should pray deeply for everyone who opposes the good work of God, everyone who opposes the salvation of souls. How much do we really pray honestly for the conversion of the enemies of Holy Church, of the enemies of goodness? Do we really want them to turn, or would we just rather them disappear? Christ wants no one simply to disappear. Christ wishes to hang in there and do the difficult work of bringing people to conversion. It's more painful, certainly, but it's the pain that comes with love. It's far more beautiful. And this also helps us with one more thing, which is particularly consoling, which is, how does God look at me when I sin? Whether those are big sins or little ones, how does the Lord look at me? Because sometimes the devil can whisper lies to us and tempt us to believe that when we sin, the Lord would rather just be rid of us. Or perhaps that God sits aloof from us, waiting for us to prove ourselves to him. He would rather not let anyone into heaven to partake in his goodness, but if we can prove it, then he'll begrudgingly open the door and give us our trophy. None of that is true. The Lord does not wish to be rid of anyone, and he greatly desires to bring all souls into heaven and will, do, will offer every soul the opportunity to respond to grace. This is the doctrine of sufficient grace versus efficient grace. With a a distinction like that, you know, only a Dominican can come up with these sorts of things. Because Dominicans and distinctions are like white on rice. Uh, They're wonderful. But uh, the distinction between sufficient and efficient grace, that every soul will receive grace sufficient to reach heaven. We teach that every soul will receive an opportunity to get there such that no one will be able to say to God in eternity, you did not give me a chance. Everyone will receive enough to get there. The question is, will they respond? Will they respond? We know, of course, the Lord seems to imply that many will not. But that does not change the fact that he reaches out to every soul and longs for every soul to share in his divinity, the way he has shared in their humanity. That's so consoling. In the New Rite Mass today, the gospel reading uh, is, is the one where Christ tells all the disciples to be vigilant. But he begins that passage by saying, Do not fear, little flock, for the Father is pleased to give you the kingdom. Do not be afraid. The Father wishes to give you the kingdom. He says that to us, and he says that to everyone, and it's why he weeps over Jerusalem. Because he says to her, Jerusalem, you should not have to fear because the Father wishes to give you the kingdom. How much has he done for you? 
defending you from your enemies for centuries, rebuilding you when you were laid waste, setting his name in the middle of your temple. How much has he done for you? What more could he do that he has not done? He calls out to us the same. How many times have I called to your soul? How many times have I forgiven you in confession? How many times have I been the guest of your soul in Holy Communion? How many times have I reached out to you? And I will reach out more. Only continue to turn towards me. And I will fill you with life. Because however much we give to the Lord, he gives back far more to us. And he's never outdone in generosity. But whenever we're tempted to see God as simply aloof, whenever we're tempted to see God as waiting for humanity to prove, him, prove itself, whenever we're tempted to see God as begrudging in sharing his goodness, let Christ's tears contradict that. Let, let Christ's tears over a city that has rejected him contradict the lies of the devil and console our hearts. He wants us to come home. All we have to do is continue running back towards him and he will provide the things we need. Let us pray for all that they might recognize this and share eternity with their loving Father. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.